CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sun Joke All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sun Joke All. Very good morning and welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about this show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTRAlive, and look for this show as hashtag leadership. Today's topic is flexible leadership and evolving commitments. And our guest for today's show is Barb Kunkel, who's the CIO of Trotman Sanders. Good morning, Barb. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing wonderful today. Thank you for having me here. Great. So how's your journey going? Oh, journey is interesting. There's no doubt. I mean, the, the current economic crisis, I call it, has affected all of us, even law firms that had traditionally been immune from the recession. So it, it's an interesting world we're living in now. Great. Now, evolving commitments are, all, are the things that all leaders have to address. Now, a leader's decision-making has to be dynamic, and they have to respond to changing factors constantly. So while the leader might be keeping pace, it can impact the rest of the organization in ways perhaps the leader doesn't always recognize. And so to that, uh, Barb, when we look at this whole business world that we are operating with right now, um, if we use this phrase, evolving commitments, what's forcing us to even go in that direction? I mean, we are expected to take, or at least traditionally, we're expected to take that one earth-shattering decision, and and uh, everyone will, will follow it. But now, if you're going to say that we have an almost pseudo-ADD, then God bless us all. So so it's um, very interesting, because you got to look at it from my perspective, the legal industry. And if you look at Traditionally, even the best way I can say it, if you look at the, the movie, To Kill a Mockingbird, and the main Atticus, the main lawyer in that movie, his ability to serve the client was all focused on how best I can serve you. Let's fast forward a couple decades. You look at the movie The Firm. His, the focus, Tom Cruise playing the lawyer, was the billable hour, the profitability. You were billing and billing. So now we come into today, our economy, and I look at that, and, and you look at the, the, what happened in the economy. We aren't here where um, you look at different law practices that, that protected you from the um, highs and lows, you know, whether you're doing real estate or you're doing bankruptcy, that type of thing. It's a whole different world. Just even looking at the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics and, and comparing October of 2009 to January of 2008, more than 40,000 legal service jobs are gone. And for our firm, like many other top U.S.-based firms, as the recession became more aggressive, so did our approach and in, in our measurements, the way we measure to trim the fat. Large firms were freezing salary increases, and some of them were cutting salaries. And the offers we made to law, the law school graduates that were coming in were rescinded in some cases. Firms were restructuring and cutting out underperforming practices and partners. So looking at that candidly, as a law firm CIO and like all my colleagues, we reacted because of our relevancy to the firm was viewed from a cost containment perspective. And we were expected to do aggressive measures. So it's an interesting dynamic and in how, from a leadership perspective, we had to react in that way. So 
I like the way you explained that the macro environment changed and number of things. It was a ripple effect which impacted the business development as well as the cost of doing business. So a decision was made and, and it is understandable. Now, that's one thing which was you would you could say in, in a snapshot that decision was made given the current current at that particular time the circumstances now we are talking about a mindset where leader if they even they want to take that decision take a deep breath and then try to stabilize the the organization there comes yet another disruption yet another change in the macro environment so are we reacting too quickly to anything that is happening out there or are things happening at such a rapid pace and in such a big magnitude that you cannot do anything but to have a commitment which is not a strong one-time commitment but an evolving commitment? Okay, so okay, so I got over the shock of my new normal. And to your point, looking at that, here's where I had to change my mindset. I had to look at this so I can still have my innovation in there, still um, hit new targets because our firm repositioned a new business strategic plan. So I had to then go and say, how, do, how, do, how does IT, the technologist, make a contribution to that business? And what technologies are out there? And how does that affect the commitments? That's where cloudification came in. Virtualization became more pressing of a need for us to get more efficient, to be able to deliver, and to really go to the tradition of embracing you know, total quality process, total quality management. And remember, I was on the billable hours thing. Efficiency really wasn't built into that. But our clients were getting smarter, and they were challenging us. So our whole – I had to be flexible. And now our attorneys were embracing the cloud, using Dropbox and everything. Then I had the security dynamics. Oh, wait, what are you doing there? I had to change mindset, get on board, reposition the firm so I protect us from a security standpoint, make sure we can make these evolving um, commitments live up to them. And so it's actually becoming quite an interesting opportunity for the CIO of a law firm, and I'm embracing it. And now I have a new strategic plan, and it's interesting when you develop that strategic plan over the next four years, how do you do four years? Can you only do 12 months? Can you really do only 18 months? Will you buy equipment if you have to buy it tomorrow with touchscreen or not? You know, how much are the lawyers going to embrace that? You have the younger generation, the older. That's my challenge as a leader, and I've embraced it using total quality management principles, repositioning the strategic plan. Pretty good answer to the question. Now, if you were to take those decisions which you just mentioned that you took and uh, I think well thought out and they are also, I'm assuming, already creating value for all people involved. The decisions that you actually shared were one was in security, another was in visibility, third was in agility, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the question comes is that would you make a commitment to go in one direction in a particular area, say security for now? And if you were to come six months later or a year later and say, I need to change my direction, do you have the the preparation already or groundwork done so that people above you and people below you don't kind of frown upon it and, and they kind of understand why you're doing it? Or, or is that uh, uh, an embarrassing situation for a leader to even get into? I've been in this firm for seven years and it's taken a while to change the culture here from how they view technology. And we set it up from people, the process, and the technologies. And 
having lawyers understand through they are a partnership, so we do it through community, the committees here, and teach them about it, about what the value is. And I think over time they've now embraced it. And so I have caveats in there. This is the world we see in the next three to four years. Here's why, but it's subject to change. And we are making lease versus buy decision to give us more flexibility. We may have purchased in the past, but now we're going to lease so that we can change quicker in certain areas because the law practice demands that of us. And that's how we're approaching it. And, and yes, they're embracing it, but it's tricky to get them to embrace it. I have to use different techniques. They're competitive by nature lawyers, so I use gam- gamification. I um, com- compete against each other. One lawyer to another. Hey, you're embracing this. How come you can't? It's, it's that. And then lawyers speaking to lawyers. So I get the real rainmakers to embrace it, and then they talk to the other lawyers. So it's a strategic approach in the way we can get the culture to change the people. We've, we haven't really had to modify our practices because we've got them to the point where we have solid change control processes. So when new things come through the pipeline, we can react much quicker. And that's the new technologies on the, in the market that we embraced. Virtualization, cloud computing, we're moving much quicker. If we had not done that, I'm not sure how many CIOs in my profession would be there for the long haul. So you definitely did a great job of getting it adopted, right? Like the way you mentioned some of the techniques or having lawyers promote uh, the the tools and technologies and process changes. Have they become used to that here comes Barb again six months later with yet another item uh, which is going to change? Oh, change that way you said it. It isn't here comes Barb. Here comes the firm's managing partner. Here comes the department head. Here comes the section leader. I share that wealth because I I need the profits to be more than just me. Because when they look at me, I am a non-practicing lawyer. I, I I, I have to be, I'm viewed administratively. And in this environment, it has to be the people they see and can relate to them the most on a daily basis of practicing law. So they're coming up with a change. We're trying to build a culture. Well, we restructured after this whole uh, crisis happened, the new normals there. We actually restructured our firm, the firm leadership, and all the way down. They're embracing the continuous improvement and the change as a way of our culture now. So change is happening more regularly, more frequently than it had ever in the past. Is it difficult? Yes, but we're there with them. We're helping them through it, and we use videos is another way to communicate messages because they're very busy people. Remember the billable hour, so how do you reach them? We're using the latest technologies to get their, get them to get the quick bits of information so they can feel that change more transparently. Now, I'm sure when we are looking at this in hindsight 2020, what do you think could be the mistakes that people could make or you would have uh, while trying to understand how to go about changing the mindset that there will be evolving commitments on behalf of leadership, not only from technology, but also the business. What did it take? What were the gotchas, the pitfalls, the issues, the challenges, the, the stubborn people? What, what kind of cleanup or changes did you have to put in place in order to get to where you are now? Well, in some cases, you have to measure. We knew the risk. We, well, we kind of did a risk assessment. If you do this, what impact does it have on the rainmakers? Because if the rainmakers up and leave your law firm, 
in our profession, that can be very damaging. And we've seen a lot of law firms in the, over the last uh, several years go under, and they're f- relatively large New York-based law firms. So what what the missteps and the lessons learned is the pace. We may have gone too fast in certain cases and because our assumptions may not have been totally valid of the impact on the lawyer of what we're asking them to embrace and new ways to do uh, legal process management with client projects. And if you go too fast, you may hurt quality. And in, may, in some cases, you may not have had the right checks and balances to identify that, uh-oh, something broke in the process. So you weren't measuring it before. You sped up the process, and that triggered, a, oh, maybe we, should need, need, we need to measure that now. Does that make sense? Definitely. Now, let's take a quick break. Uh, listeners will be right back. And, Barb, when we come back, how about looking at the, the if you change one degree, uh, and if you were one mile uh, above the earth, then a lot of changes can happen below. So think about you as a leader and you shift your mindset, your strategy, your approach to how you're going to move forward or your commitment by a single degree. It can have a massive impact on uh, the people who are trying to make that happen. So it is something to be calibrated. It has to be discussed and it has to be also i'm not sure if there's a consensus required but some sort of uh uh you know team decision making has to happen for it to happen not only once but on a regular basis so what is that preparation for an organization that's needed and what is who all do you need by your side who are doing that with you so that whenever you shift a degree rest of the organization moves multiple degrees but they do it happily and uh, they're all still a team Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So, Barb, you change one or half degree, and the rest of the organization might have to change 20 degrees. And that kind of uh, uh, sensitivity in an organization would require that everybody is totally in sync and happy and volunteering to make that change. Yes. So let me share something along that line so we can build on this. So uh, law firms, what, when I explain to my kids what's my job, I tell them I go to the word factory every day. 
We process words, documents, knowledge through the documents we're producing, whether on paper or electronically. So in, in that vein, the core piece in that production process is our document management system and Microsoft Word. So when you make a change there, that's pretty huge to the firm, and, but maybe not so much for me in making it. I can make one degree change there, but it can have a dramatic effect. For example, taking your document management system and taking it from inside the office and moving it to the cloud to a solution like NetDocuments, or taking that process and the way you store them and everything and moving it to like a SharePoint. So let's look at Clifford Chance, a huge law firm, who decided uh, two years back and working with Microsoft, we are going to take all our offices globally and we're going to move off our iManage document management system and we're moving over to SharePoint and wow, we're moving there. It was so, two years later, they still don't have it there. They've done it. They've learned so much from it. All of us are sitting back saying, wow, share with us what you learned from a leadership standpoint, the decision-making process, because they were so sure it cost a lot of money and they're still working towards it. Is the vision wrong? I do not think so. But I think they jumped too soon to it. I don't think the technology was ready or the law practice because there was, uh, it wasn't seamless enough for the way they practice law. So looking at it from my perspective is taking that kind of move, what you can have as a side effect, and you need to be aware of that, that people will work around. Work around whether it's a business process system or the technology, they're going to work around it. And that opens up other areas of exposure. And you have to be prepared to make sure if something happens, you have your colleagues, you have the the people that stand behind you, your technology committee, the firm leadership, so that they can help bring that back in if the process goes out of control. So that one degree over can be a significant move for everyone else, and to bring them back in line can really lose the momentum you may have in your forward program of a technology strategic plan. Now, you mentioned about attorneys in your case, you know, and you used leverage that, that competitiveness to uh, get the adoption going. Now, think about all leaders who are primarily trying to go into this commitment mode or evolving commitment mode. Do you think, are we better off not in all cases say that just because everybody else is moving fast or making commitments way too quick, and that there is some immunity we should keep doing it because in the long run, where companies have been there forever, they have not been doing it and still they have been successful. So just because somebody else is doing it, we are not supposed to join the bandwagon, are we? We actually make a conscious decision about that. In what areas do we want to move very aggressively? In what areas we're okay where we are? We're not striving to be in that um, early to market. Like a Clifford Chance, for example, they have a different cost structure. They have a different market base that they are in. We weren't going to approach it like that. So one size fits all does not, is not the case when you're applying your strategies to your firm. It depends on the practice, practice areas you have, uh, what's key, which some of your top practice areas, and how you want to move forward with that. In some of our top practice areas, we may be more aggressive and how we do document assembly, document automation, you know, repeatable process. Maybe we have a heavy transactional pri uh, practice, and we're willing to take a few extra um, be first at because we want to keep on top. In other areas, that may not be necessary. Maybe we have the practice there because we want to be a full service. 
and I don't have to be first to market with some of the activities they want. This firm makes those conscious decisions, and the business guides the technology in that in that manner. And those questions get asked. Just the fact that our firm's asking the questions is a great sign in the legal industry. Now, it could happen that we made a commitment about something and we had the organization start moving in that particular direction. And now, again, because of changes of environmental variables or parameters or business directives, we are, again, supposed to pick up and uh, move in, pick up all the different pieces that we already have and move in a different direction. Do you think it is taxing for the leader or is it as easy as saying okay i made did the due diligence everybody roll in one direction to another so how much leakage could be happening because you could say yes we have to move in this new direction but if we do do the math that whatever you already invested in it in terms of uh, dollars and equity and and uh, morale or whatever else that you can uh, you know count and measure how do you make sure that you're not moving where the net effect is negative well it depends it, and that's a, a judgment call that I I apply math to, my financial background. So in addition to IT, the finance, and the business. And I say that because from my perspective, making that move, um, it, I, I guess the way to say it is that if it's a mature process that I'm dealing with and whatever change affects something we're pretty mature in, it's less of an issue for me and less of a worry that I'm going negative. However, if it's an area that we're moving quickly because we've repositioned, then repositioned again, then repositioned, we haven't had time to really mature that process, that's very disruptive to us. And as a leader, you have to calm the waters, not just with what's in your control, your staff, but in the ones that you consult with, the ones that you're providing internal service and even external to the client. So if there's disruption, to calm the waters as a leader and realize that your job became, you now have to do, it's looked at from a managed chaos. Don't let, get it, let it be chaos out of control, but you view it from managed chaos. And realize that that particular process isn't at a mature state and it is evolving and evolving and evolving. Our commitments are evolving evolving. And, and you need to be flexible enough and adaptable and apply good management practices as you move through those rough waters. I'm assuming that you yourself as an individual is not just seen as a leader. Everybody else looks up to the team, the leadership team, as the one who has evolving commitments because you must be going out to the rest of your uh, you know, workforce or attorneys, whosoever that is involved in that transformation from one point to another, are looking up to the whole team. So now you have one mindset, but you're still a human being, and so are other people in the leadership team. Do you think all of them have that level of or will require to have exactly the same level of uh, emotional intelligence and the wavelength match? I mean, we're asking for too much, especially when you're trying to make it a moving target. Oh, in an ideal world, we'd all have the same emotional intelligence and it would be at a very high state. (laughs) That'd be the ideal world, but that's not reality. And someone's emotional um, intelligence kind of changes with that situation, too. So at different times, we're not all on the same page. And this is the challenge as a leader, is that you have to be intuitive. You have to use your influential skills that when you're at the point where you really feel this is your area of strength, you're really at the high point, and you, you see it, you have that vision, it's pretty crystal clear, 
use that information to go influence everybody else. And you have to know when you may not be there. And you need to listen and understand and listen to the other leaders that what you're trying to push forward or where we're going and I'm struggling with, I have to defer to them and reach out to them often to make sure I can appropriately readjust. So I count on the others when I have to influence them or when they need to influence me. And I have to be smart enough to recognize that. And I have to recognize when others may not. And we kind of teach each other, I think. This continuous learning environment we have, we, we teach each other. And we have different styles, but we try to come together as a cohesive team. Totally. So um, now one question for you would be is that while at the leadership level, you expect them to have uh, emotional intelligence and um, you know all the traits because of which they are at the level uh, of a leader. Rest of the organization, they didn't sign up for this, I'm assuming, when they came on board. No, <laughs> they did not. And, and that's the challenge. And again, it's in your messaging. What's in it for me? If you don't have a with them in there, what's in it for me? Then you're not going to get your followers to come on board. You have to be a compelling leader. You've got to create that business case, that compelling why, why change, right? It's like at the start of our um, conversation, I wanted you to be aware of why is the legal industry changed? What's going on? And that's pretty compelling when you have 40,000 jobs in a very short period of time just gone. Or if you're in manufacturing and all the jobs you had in the U.S. went globally, that's compelling for change. So you, in, if you localize it within your organization as a leader, you really have to give the whistle back to the employees. What's in it for me? And make sure that they understand that they're on board with you and you bring them along. And as a leadership team, we have those discussions. What's the whistle? So if you are talking to some of the people, what is it that they say uh, their topmost concern is when they see this moving target for all of them? I don't have time. I'm expected to get all these billable hours. The business model has yet to really fully change. I want to make my client very happy. And you're now expecting more of my time, and I'm not sure I'm really getting that return. What's the value proposition? It's, it's that dialogue that's a very difficult uh, discussion. Here, let me make it real for you. So I'm a lawyer sitting at my desk, and I have the screen up, and I go and print the document because I want to look at it on paper, make some mar you know, just look at it, and then I'm going to make up some markup on it, and then I'm going to go make some document changes on the screen. I go to the lawyer and say, there's a better way. Well, I don't have time for it. Well, I understand. Come on down next door, one of the partners. Well, I'll catch you at lunch. I'll take you out to lunch. But on our way, let's start stop at this other partner's door. I want to show you something. And you go to the other office, and the partner has two um, screens up, dual monitor. The left side, here's the, the, the document that they're looking at. The right side, they're making changes. They can see it, still see the other side. Now, I just left the paper world. I didn't have to go over and print it. That costs money. I'm more efficient. I don't have, I'm there. I got it up. I can go between the two screens being very efficient. But to get lawyers to embrace it, I have to have lawyers talking to lawyers. It's what's in it for me, a free lunch, whatever it takes. And that's, those are the kinds of approaches that leaders, especially a technology leader that's, um, you know, kind of a, a ch agent of change, 
will need to have to embrace those kinds of skills. And it's not just not technology. It can be the financial leader. It can be, you know, the operations leader. Any of our leadership corporate positions, they need to look at things differently. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and uh, talk about the overarching impact that, of course, we spoke about what are the top challenges uh, with the worker, but how are they uh, able to, again, work with each other because the kind of leadership uh, related uh, changes that you have to make or camaraderie that you've developed because you work very closely with each other. Again, you're a lot more spread out dealing with a lot many more people at the operational level where these changes have to be manifested. So what is it that is being taught to them? Do you need special mentorship program when, whenever there's an evolving commitment? What kind of machinery will have to be put in place in order for it to start making that gradual change in the mindset of people so that next time when it comes, it is not something which is a reason for them to leave the job and instead embrace it and move along as every leader in the organization is doing. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back and explore. HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sun Joke All. Welcome back. So, uh, Barb, just to kind of continue that particular question I asked before the break, is the machinery that you have to put in place. It could be a, a workforce development machinery. It could be organizational, uh, you know, the, the people who are in HR and or their respective leaders at all levels, their machinery, whosoever is involved, what do they do to make sure that these people become more resilient to this evolving commitment type of lifestyle and not resilience from just uh, be able to handle the pressure, but also, you know, create that camaraderie among a lot many more people that they have to deal with at that level. So the best way to explain, first of all, there's several people. There's HR involved. There's department heads, uh, practice heads or whatever that are involved. Several people are involved in this whole how do we mentor our employees and, and succession planning and all of that. So I want to give you a couple examples. Let's take the first one. Uh, I work with a technology committee with lawyers. And it's like um, that's always a funny story when you talk about that. But the partners, and we do have some associates on there. And one, uh, what we have is a committee chair. Well, this year, as of January, every year we rotate it every two years. We have a new committee chair, and that's a growth position for him. It's the first He's been on committees, but this is the first time he's leading one, which is great. So how did we prepare in advance of that? Well, in the two years prior, he was someone we were considering, targeting, 
And so when the meetings were run and I would work with a former chair, we kind of got things moving in that direction, brought him into discussions, and through those discussions he was getting credibility with the committee. So he started to surface as one of the odd um, potential natural leaders. And so it, he evolved into it because we had forethought to plan for that. So there's one example. Um, another example, when we're looking at associates as they're trying to make up, the, go up the ranks to partnership, there's a well thought out what the first year is expected to learn. You know, how many briefs do they write? Uh, you know, in, you know, in court or whatever the the kind of incremental first year, second year, up to fourth year, or whatever. We have a progression, and we actually have a thought process. Uh, that's there. With me, I have someone that I look to in my leadership team that would be successor to me and planning for that. So the the mechanics around it is we build it in our job descriptions. So as job descriptions evolve, we add more responsibilities. Uh, We build it in just a natural process where we communicate to people. Here's kind of a step-step process and the skills we want you over time to start to build. Just like in the first example, we were expecting this partner to be involved in committees, and then our expectation was get more involved and, and maybe lead some of, um, some of the discussions and evolve into this leadership role. And we had others like that, and it just naturally surfaced up because we planned for it. Now, we have also uh, Professor Joseph Badarko, uh, who is John Shad Professor of Business Ethics at Harvard Business School. Join us. Uh, Honor to have you, Professor. Glad to be here. Oh, so Thank glad you. you're here. This is Barb Kunkel. Hi, Barb. Sorry about the delay in getting on. No, no problem there. And in fact, uh, you know, Barb was providing background of uh, what she's done in her organization. Kudos to her for what she has been able to accomplish. And we were very intrigued about the the book and the angle that you've taken about evolving commitments. And since, of course, uh, Barb shared her experience, her journey, would love to understand from you this whole evolving commitments area. What prompted you to write the book and essentially where the challenges, which is to be addressed a little differently as, as compared to what has been done now? Sure. Let me try to give you a real quick overview, and then I can follow up with uh, anything that any questions either of you have. So uh, my specialty is business ethics. Most of the work that's been done in business ethics is focused on big established companies. My question is what, uh, what's different if you're running a small entrepreneurial-type company? What does it mean to be a responsible leader in these really fluid, uncertain circumstances where you don't have a big staff to rely on, intense competition, lots of uncertainty, et cetera? So that was the question. What does it mean to be a responsible leader in those conditions? And I interviewed uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and read a lot about a lot of entrepreneurs. And one of the big questions you have running any organization is how do you make big decisions and how do you get them right? And it was as an answer to that that I came up with this phrase, evolving commitments. That seemed to me to describe how entrepreneurs thought about uh, big decisions. Uh, What's different, to answer your question specifically, is that in the old days, if you will, the big decision for a lot of organizations, which were manufacturing organizations, was what kind of a factory do we build, what kind of machinery do we put in it, and then they were locked into a product line that might change incrementally over time. Today, in kind of a knowledge economy, you don't have to build a big factory. If you are manufacturing something, you can search the world for somebody to make it for you. 
you've got a lot more options for changing what you're doing, and you've got a lot less clarity and certainty about the future, so you probably shouldn't lock yourself into something. And what entrepreneurs do is make what I sort of described as evolving commitments. They say to the different parties, the ones who are funding them, working with them, this is what we're aiming to do. This is what we think we're going to accomplish. This is roughly when, but watch this space because a lot may change. So that's my idea fundamentally of an evolving commitment. It's a clear direction, but with lots of warnings to other people and with a flexible organization that's ready to change when there's either opportunities or unpleasantness uh, down the road. So while, Professor, you uh, interviewed a lot of entre- entrepreneurs and coming to Barb, Barb, don't you think that your organization is no different than an entrepreneurial venture? Because if things are changing fundamentally, we cannot be thinking like a big organization, which has all the, the, the cash flow and all the profits available, and you can slowly make those incremental changes in your factory. Barb? Yes, yes. And obviously, mine is the word factory, law firm. We produce words and documents. <laughs> but you know what was intriguing about that that conversation from a business ethics standpoint? As, as I hear the dialogue, what comes to mind to me is the challenges I have. So these knowledge economy and the shift of what's going on. So information is everywhere, and everybody's moving it to the cloud so they can get it anytime, anywhere. You know, mm. everything's there. And as I'm moving my organization to the cloud, it's affecting people. It's affecting jobs. And, and so what's, from a business ethics um, discussion, how do you broach that? Do you, you know, we're in flux, we're doing this, but people are worried about their jobs then. And how do you have that dialogue? And from my perspective, I think as much as possible you're up front, but you're honest and you involve them in the process and what we've been fortunate to do is reposition jobs. So we take a technologist where their job's gone away, but we've integrated them into the business, and they become a business analyst versus versus my technology IT analyst. And we're migrating them into that and have a path for that. But from a business ethics standpoint, I've heard other companies approach it differently, and that's where, where I see the employees, you don't get that loyalty. It's already tough enough to get it anyways, but... It's that, and I, and I think business ethics plays a role in there. Yeah, I agree. I think you've talked, what you describe are really tough decisions because, you know, you hire somebody, you often meet with them. Uh, you, know, you understand they're make, maybe they're moving to take the job, uh, they're turning down other opportunities, and you don't want to pull the rug out from underneath them. On the other hand, you can't guarantee a lot of stuff today. Uh, and I think what's impressive is what you described, that you, even in an era when loyalty is sort of over, uh, you, it sounds like you go an extra step and say, look, if the initial job for which we hired you disappears, but we think you're a talented person, you're really committed, we like you, we're going to try to do what we can to keep you on board. That's going further than a lot of other organizations do that basically say, look, it's a tough world. Um, we'll try to keep you around as long as you're useful, and uh, we'll try to help you build a resume, but you may well be on your own, and who knows when. 
But that sounds, you know, the latter sounds like they haven't, they don't have a plan. They don't have a strategic plan that includes people processing technology. If you include the people in it, if a year from now or two years from now, you know you're trying to get somewhere, that's your vision, and yeah. you know, because that's about as far as you can go. You know you're going to affect people, but a lot of times people put the people the last piece. <laughs> they forget. I, yeah, I agree. That. I think that what a lot of companies do uh, is somewhat uh, sounds cold-hearted. But they sort people into different groups, and there's some really talented people. They feel lucky to have them, lucky to recruit them, and they want to keep them. And uh, so this is the A team. But then there's other teams, and they sort of assume, especially you know, with the economy the way it is in so much of the country now, that if they need to replace these people, they can. So they don't really mind letting them go now, especially if there's cost pressure. So there's sort of different different deals for different uh, hires. Yes, the ABC program of Jack Welch, sounds like. Well, yeah, he was ahead of the curve, on, so to speak, on that. Um, so coming uh, to the evolving well, commitment area, so, Professor, if you had to uh, take uh, your idea about what you discussed with entrepreneurs and were to apply that to organizations as well, what is a commonality or what is a common denominator that you find in the very need of having that evolving commitment or is this more of a fad? And secondly, if suppose we do say, yes, it is a need of the times, what is it that you're seeing people do who are actually effective in embracing it and making it happen? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a fad. Uh, I think this turbulent, uncertain world we live in is here to stay. In other words, it's not the result of integrating China or Asia into the global economy over the last 15 years, and it's not just the result of the Internet or the financial crisis. I think there's really deep forces. I can tell you what I think they are if you want, but uh, I think this world is here to stay. And I think what a lot of companies basically offer, no matter what they say, but what they offer and what people they hire understand is, look, I've got a job for the foreseeable future. That may be six months. It may be 18 months if there's no big problems. I may be able to have another job with this organization if there's a great match. They like me. My talents really match their needs. But there's no guarantee. And what the organization, what organiz, good organizations do today, I think, is let people know what their competitive environment are and the risks they're taking and the assurances they can legitimately provide. And sometimes they can provide pretty good assurances, again, if it's A-team talent. And in other cases, I think all they can say is, look, well, you'll be doing this work. This is what you'll be learning. This is the line you'll get on your resume. We all hope you're here for the longer term. But we don't know what may sneak up behind us and clobber us. I don't think in good faith you can commit to much more than that unless you're a fortunate firm that's got a really strong competitive position, and those are tougher and tougher to come by these days. I agree with you you, about what you're saying. Here's where it's tough for me, and I just don't know from a business, business ethics, commitment standpoint, but with all the competing pressures uh, that we have, and you want to think about your employees and the firm and, you know, all the commitments we have. In the end, the firm wins. That's how I view things and I make decisions. 
and that sometimes is sometimes can be gut wrenching because of this yeah. unpredicted environment that we live in today. And and for me, people are live in a fear of their job. So when you have that, how do you become productive if you're always worrying about am I going to have a job tomorrow? So uh, let's yeah let's do this. Hold your thought, Professor. We'll be back sure. after a quick break, and we'll continue. Sure. The U.S. and Canada represent just five percent of the global population, but collectively we consume about thirty-five percent of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option; it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google "Lead the Charge Portal." HP is proud to sponsor this program. Tap into our expertise, innovation, and services to bring your most important workloads to the cloud. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So the whole idea that we have been talking about, uh, Professor, this is for you, is to say we want to do uh, best for the organization. And yes, as leaders, we might have evolving commitments. But all of these could be impacting the people who form the business or form the organization, and it creates risk for them. And it is not a very comfortable thought. Yes, corporations are expected to make profits, but at what cost? Yeah, I think there's uh we've sort of emphasized the the way in which things evolve and often in surprising, unpredictable, uncontrollable ways and then you've got to make tough decisions. But the other side of the phrase evolving commitments is commitments. And I think the response and the the book that this phrase comes from is called the good struggle and part of the argument in the book is that you can learn about a lot from entrepreneurs about how hard the struggle is today and what form the struggle takes. And these entrepreneurs are really committed. So the people they hire and the people who work with them know that the leadership of their organizations is going to do absolutely everything they can to to make the organization succeed ideally in the long run, to keep everybody on board, to build and create. And uh, that, I think, is provides a little bit of comfort when the time comes that you've got to tell people, sorry, but we can't keep you here anymore. Uh, if you know, and, and you're not kidding yourself, and you've really done everything you can uh, – uh, to keep the organization afloat, and you just can't. Uh, these are still terrible conversations, and you feel like you failed. But uh, there's a little solace in knowing that you've done everything you can to make good on the commitment side of these evolving commitments. 
So, Barb, interestingly, uh, I was thinking about this. So if you are to make a change at the top, they will say that this person is still going to get their two weeks vacation to Hawaii and they're letting me go. It doesn't help the morale. Absolutely not. But I have to ask the professor. I want to share a scenario and ask sure. how, how you would advise it. See, I, I uh, work, I mentor young people. It's the way mm-hmm. I keep myself current on technology because mm-hmm. in return they tell me about technology and what's going on. So I had this young person who decided coming out of college and undergrad in a top engineering school, and I was working with him, mentoring him. And while I was mentoring him, he started with this company that was entrepreneurial, had a patent, really good. My, the, the, um, the person was very excited about this company. But what happened after two years, they got caught up in the, this economy situation. And the, mm-hmm. the, the, this uh, gentleman, he had learned very good skills. He was very dynamic, engineer, sales side, manufacturing side, the whole thing. And they're a small company. Now, because... He was so good, they ended up using him to do a lot more, and they, they in the time, they cut him back to four-day work week, cut his salary, mm. and, and, and then what they, they did expected more. Hey, I need you here, and even though you only have to work four days, we really need you five, so try to figure it out. And, yeah. and, and, and it got such pressure, and the way he explained it to me at night, and I was talking to his wife too, he was waking up with sweats. He didn't know what to do. Wow. And he would call me and say, do you have advice? What, what should I do? I want to be committed to the company. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm, not, they're, I'm not sure if they're committed to me. It seems like they're, they're there or not. And how do you have, have, um, give advice to the other side of the equation? Yeah, he sounds like a really talented guy with a lot of different skills and somebody who takes his work really seriously. Uh, I mean, a lot of people would say that that deal was basically a pay cut barely disguised, and I'm not going to take it. Um, but I guess if I were advising him, I'm interested in knowing what you what you said. Uh, I'd say he ought to start looking around. Uh, um, that, and, that's uh, what I did. I asked him, to, what was his value? How did he see his value and explain it to me and articulate it? Mm-hmm. So I got his confidence level. So I could see where he gauged that. And then after you've done that, while he's doing it, he's telling me what he's accomplished. And he's yeah. been in the workforce for, at that point, three years, I think it was, three years in. I was like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Have you thought now to go out and market it? And that's where then the advice came, because he wasn't sure how do I approach, you know, how do I make that play out there. And so I was coaching him through it because I hire so many people. He asked about interviewing questions because he came right out of college going into three years. So that's about the best advice. But he was kind of um, like a disgruntled employee. He didn't feel that the company was ethical in the way that things were handled. And he so, was like, is that how everybody is? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to let companies and, and bad managers or unethical managers off the hook. But um, in many cases, good managers uh, and responsible people are basically just transmission mechanisms for forces that are going on in the economy. And uh, when... Things turn down in their industry, in their economy, in their for their company. They do end up having to squeeze people, as was happening in this case. Now, I don't know whether they were just trying to get a little more out of this guy for less to add to the bottom line and buy a snowmobile or something like that, or whether they were asking other people in the organization to make 
uh, this they kind were doing of across commitment. the board the way he explained it. So yeah. it wasn't just him. He wasn't targeted. Well, you know, that's in some ways uh, what Germany has done over the last four or five years. It's a kind of a work-sharing program. And often organizations will do something like that. But, you know, it's only going to work uh, on a temporary basis. As you said, it puts a lot of stress on people, and the people who have options will look elsewhere. So as a temporary device, it may work, and I think it may be a completely responsible device if it's well-motivated and everybody's sharing the burden. Yeah, I think the the company let it go too long. It was on for at least six months um, for that kind of work five days, but I'm paying you for yeah. four, and I know you still got to make your commitments to your your living expenses and all that, and you had to readjust. You know, that was a big big change. So Sounds now, like the, let's since we have only have two minutes left, uh, Professor, we have two sure. minutes left, so I wanted sure. to at least wrap it up to under to basically cover the advice that you will give, because this looks like an example where uh, something which was perhaps. Uh, tried at the top, but it did not work well at the bottom in terms of how uh, an employee got handled. So mm -hmm. if you had to give an advice, if people are as leaders making evolving commitments, what is it that they would do? They should be doing to the organization, to the to the people so that we do not see such cases being discussed in, in uh, on air or anywhere else. Well, it's tough to do and it's another struggle, but I think clarity is absolutely critical. So clarity with the people in the middle of this organization we're talking about, about what we're doing, why, how long we're going to do it, clarity with people in the middle about what they should say and shouldn't say to people like the young man we were just talking about, clarity to the whole organization and people outside like investors and technology partners about what's actually going on in the organization. Uh, okay. And clarity about the problems and how you're attacking them. I don't think you can do much more than that and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're unsure about. These are the risks. We're working like crazy. I don't know what, what more you can do. I think I totally agree with that. And you can see good managers, are, are that level of clarity is exceptional, and the bad managers, it's lacking. And it, it's just a communication breakdown. And it takes some courage to be clear when the news isn't good. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you ha and not everybody's good at that. But on on the behalf hand, of this show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, uh, both Barb and Professor Joseph, for sharing your thoughts on uh, the flexible leadership, the evolving commitments, and the different challenges that you may face and uh, those predicaments you may have as you go about leading these organizations. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, listeners, please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Radio, and please be sure to follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Please join Sun Joke All next Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time for another hour of CIO Talk Radio on the Voice America Business Channel.
CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by HP and Siemens Smart Grid.